So Romans chapter five, verse 20 and 21, the last two verses of chapter five, and then we'll get into the first four verses of chapter six, all right? So verse 20 says this. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, just to recap quickly the first five chapters of Romans, we've been talking for the last, you know, however many weeks now, what the gospel is. Because Paul says after his intro in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to save. And it reveals two things. It reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals the wrath of God. It reveals the wrath of God in that God has to punish sin. But it reveals the righteousness of God in that God punished Christ in our place. And so he's been building that out for the last few chapters that we are saved by faith in Christ. And so I told you several weeks ago, if you were here, it's by grace through faith in Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel. So he's been building that out for the last several chapters that we're not saved by the law. We're not saved by obeying the law, but we're saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so now he's already anticipating, again, because this is just how Paul writes. This is why it's called the greatest letter ever written, because he automatically anticipates the questions that we would have in response to that. So now he's saying, okay, well, what about the law? Because naturally the Jewish person would say, okay, you're talking about Adam and you're talking about Christ. What about Moses? If it's Adam to Christ, what about Moses? What about the law, their whole being as a nation, their whole, you know, the, the law that was given to them at Sinai. What about that? And so Paul says the law was given so that the trespass might increase. Now you look at that and you think, hold up a second. That sounds really strange. Why in the world would God give the law so that the trespass or sin would increase? You wouldn't think that God would want sin to abound. You would think that God would want sin to abate, right? You wouldn't think that God would want sin to increase. Literally, the word here, increase, is multiply. We've heard a little bit about that. And so it sounds like on one level that Paul's saying, well, God gave the law so that sin would increase. But notice what he says here and how he says it. He says that the trespass might increase. That word there, trespass, is singular. It's not plural. So he's not saying that trespasses would increase. He's not saying that God gave the law so that more people would sin. Like more people would start trespassing. And so the trespasses there would be plural, not singular. No, he's still talking about the singular event of what Adam did. Because that's what he said in verse 18 and 19, if you were here last week. Through one man's disobedience, all were made uh, unrighteous. But through one man's obedience, all are made righteous. And so he's still talking about what Adam did. So you say, okay, what, what about the law that came you know, hundreds of years later? How does that make that one trespass increase? Think about it like this. It's not increase in quantity, it's increase in quality. What he's saying here is this. The whole point of the law is for the severity of that trespass to increase. It's to show you how severe the trespass is. That's the point. Because without a framework of the law, we don't know what the trespass is. 
Without a framework of right and wrong, we can't relate to that sin as being that bad. And and this is the conversation we keep having in our culture today is, okay, what constitutes morality? How do you legislate? Everybody's like, you can't legislate morality. Well, we do legislate morality. We say, this is wrong. This is deserving of a punishment of sin. All we've done in our, our culture is we've started just to move the scale on what is right and wrong. But you can't understand the severity of something unless you understand it and compare it to the perfection of something else. And so all Paul is getting at here is the law was given so that we would understand the severity or increase the severity of the trespass, of the sin. If you want a good commentary on Romans chapter 5, go to Galatians chapter 3. I'm not saying turn there now, but you can look at it later. Paul makes a similar argument when he's talking about Abraham, and he says Abraham was saved by faith, and then he says, well, why the law? Why was the law given? He says the law was given to show us about sin and to be a placeholder until the Savior came. And so here's the point of the law. The point of the law is not a roadmap to show you how to be saved. The point of the law is to show you that you need to be saved. That's the point of the law. You wouldn't know that you've broken or you've transgressed if you didn't have a standard. So he's saying the point of the law is simply this, to show you the severity of the trespass or to increase the, the quality of the trespass to show you how wrong and bad it really is. But then he says this, but, and I, again, you know I love conjunctions, I love prepositions, but there, so it's an adversative conjunct, conjunction. It says this, he's comparing the, the increase of the trespass to the increase of grace. He says, but where the law, where the sin or the trespass increase, grace abounded all the more. So even though the severity of the sin increased with the law, it couldn't outgrace God. So even though the increase abounded, grace abounded all the more. And this is what's called a, a superlative. He's not saying that, oh, this increased, then grace increases, then this increased, then grace increases. He's saying, no, this increased and grace blew it out of the water. It increased all the more. He's saying that even though when the law came, sin was seen as really bad, it can't be compared to how good grace is because grace abounds all the more. And a superlative is talking about the the quantity and the quality. It's saying it abounded a lot in quantity, but it abounded even more so in quality. It outqualifies sin. Grace outqualifies it. Grace triumphs over it. This is not, and I tell you this all the time, it's not an epic battle, yin-yang, God versus evil. No, 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 no. God wins hands down every time. So where sin is there and it was increased by the law, grace obliterates it. And I told you last week, this is why I'm so thankful that there's an abundance of grace. There's an abounding measure to grace. Aren't you so thankful for that? Because I don't know about you, but I got a lot of sin. And so I need to know that when it comes to my sin, grace wins. And how does it win? 
He tells us it, it rains, it might rain, even though death was, or sin was reigning in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So grace abounds because Jesus beat death. And so now that Jesus is alive, now that Jesus, through his righteousness, through his perfection in obeying the law, even though my sin was deserving of death, he died in my place, now grace abounds to me. So not only did grace beat death, but now grace beats any sin in my life. Grace wins. And then naturally what we would think is, oh, okay, if grace wins, if it beats sin, then automatically the human being thinks, oh, okay, then if I can have grace, I have the ever cascading flow of grace to me in Christ all the time leading to eternal life because of his perfection, then I can just keep on sinning, right? I can just keep on increasing in sin, which is exactly how a human being would think. You mean God is just going to love me forever? God is going to continue to give me grace? Yes. Okay, sweet. I can keep sinning. And that's exactly how Paul thinks that we're going to think. So he writes, anticipating you and I would think that way. Why? Because we're sinners. So look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the argument that Paul, again, this is why it's the greatest ever, ever, ever written. He already anticipates, he knew that human beings would, would think, oh, if grace alone is always coming to us, then that means we can continue in sin. In fact, this is one of the chief arguments against the Protestant Reformation by the Catholic Church. When Martin Luther said, no, no, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When he argued that, the very first thing that the Catholic Church said back to him is, if you tell people they're saved by grace alone, then they'll keep sinning. So the Catholic Church's position today is you're not saved by grace alone, you're saved by grace plus works. And they get that argument from the book of James where he says faith without works is dead, but he's not talking about faith without works when it relates to us and God. He's talking about us and human beings in that message there. If you want to understand that, we did a sermon series in 2017 on the book of James where I actually go through that misunderstanding that people have there in the book of James because James is not saying something different than what Paul is saying here. But the Catholic Church would say, no, 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 no. If you tell people that they're saved just by grace without their works, then they will keep on sinning. And that was the argument against Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation from the Catholic Church. And it is still a schism today between Catholics and Protestants. But here's the argument. The argument is we're saved by grace alone through faith, but that grace is not a license to keep sinning. And this was the argument that they leveled, and, and if you want to know the theological term, it's called antinomianism. The word anti means against. Nomianism comes from the Latin word nomos, which means law, anti-law. The argument is, if you tell people that they're saved by grace, then they'll just keep on breaking, they'll treat the law like it's nothing. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what grace is. And I say this to you often. Grace 
is not a license to sin. Grace is the power of God to obey. Grace will never lead you to keep sinning. Grace will give you power over your sin. And that's why Paul anticipates the fact that people are going to object to this statement of grace abounding. They say, well, if grace is abounding, why can't I just keep on sinning? Paul says, by no means. Depending upon your translations, it may say, God forbid, that's a good translation. If your translation just says no or certainly not, it's not a very good translation. Because the force of the word here is very strong. He says, by no means. Literally translated, it's saying, may this never come to pass. May this never be in existence in your mind. By no means, God forbid, don't think like that. Because why in the world, think about this, why in the world would God send his son to die and free you from the slavery of sin and then give you the permission to go right back into it? That's just dumb. That's like God coming and freeing you from prison. You're like, thank you, Lord, for throwing up the gates and letting me walk out, but I think I'm going to stay. I can leave at any time, but I think I'm going to stay because I like it here. Paul's arguing, that's crazy, by no means. Grace is not a license to keep on sinning. Grace is the power of God over sin. That's why he says, how can those who die to it continue to live in it? Here's the difference. It doesn't mean that the Christian who is now saved by grace through faith in Christ doesn't still sin. I did not understand this early on in my Christian walk. And I don't feel like, maybe the church did and I just wasn't listening, but I don't feel like the church that I was going to, that I you know, started attending after I got saved, did a helpful job of explaining the difference. Because the church would just stand up and rail against sinning. But I thought, man, I still sin. I still struggle with sin. So if I'm still sinning, I must not be saved. And I've said this to you often. This is why I asked Jesus into my heart over a thousand times. But it wasn't until literally decades later that I realized, no, it's not that those who are born again don't still sin. It's that their relationship with sin has now changed. My relationship with sin has changed. What that means is this. I hate it now. I hate sin. And I fight against sin. But I do that, this is so key, by the grace of God. I do it by the grace of God because the grace of God is the power of God that's available to me by the Spirit of God to overcome my sin. I can't fight it by my flesh. This is what Paul argues in Galatians. I fight it by the Spirit. He says to the Galatians, if you began by the Spirit, you can't finish by the flesh. So again, this is what makes the gospel, the good news, far gooder. I tell you that all the time. God didn't just free me from the penalty of sin. He is freeing me from the power of sin by the grace of God. So God's grace is ever flowing to me so that now by his grace, I have the power to say no. That's what Titus 2 says. I have the power of God to say no to sin, say no to my flesh. You can't beat your 
This is worth the sermon right here, worth the price of admission. You can't beat your flesh with your flesh. You can only beat your flesh by the grace of God. And this is what I started realizing in my 30s. Took me 20 years. I'm a slow learner. It took me 20 years to realize that my prayer needed to change. And this is how I started praying to God. God, I really want to sin right now. My flesh wants to sin, but I need you to give me the grace to say no. I need you to give me the grace to say yes to you and no to my flesh. My relationship with sin started to change. That's what Paul's saying here. And here's the example or the picture he uses to describe that example. Look at verse three. He says, do you not know? He asked another question. He asked all these rhetorical questions so he can answer them. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he uses baptism as the picture to illustrate the point of what he's saying. He says, do you not know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus? Here's one thing he's assuming. He's assuming that if you've trusted Christ, you've been baptized. This is why in just a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion and we're going to celebrate baptisms. The two ordinances or sacraments, depending upon how you want to call them, is what we celebrate in the church today. We celebrate communion. We celebrate baptism. Why? Because communion symbolizes his death on the cross. And baptism symbolizes his burial and resurrection. So those two go together. And you can't have baptism without communion. You cannot be baptized unless you first celebrate communion. Because communion is is recognizing, yes, he died in my place. And baptism is saying, "I'm, I'm dying with him and I'm raised. So those two go together. And here's what he's saying. He's using baptism to illustrate how our relationship with sin has changed. And baptism literally means to immerse. This is why it's so important. While we don't sprinkle, we dunk. Why? Because your whole self is sinful. So you got to baptize that whole self. You got to die to your whole self. You got to die to your relationship with sin. You no longer love it. It's no longer your go-to. It's no longer your comforter. You trade in Ben and Jerry's for the Holy Spirit, right? You trade in sin for the Spirit. Now, here, it doesn't mean you don't still struggle with sin, but now, because baptism is not just you died, it's you raised. You died to your love affair with sin. You died to your relationship with sin. That's why he says all those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So baptism is a physical symbol of something that has already happened spiritually, which means you've died to your flesh. You've died to yourself. You've died to your sin. But then here's the other part of the argument. Look at verse four. Again, this is the good news. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's the first part. Now look at the second part. In order that. 
In order that is a purpose statement. Say that with me. In order that. Let's try it again. In order that. I, I was real fast for you. I understand that. Let's try that again. One, two, three. In order that. It's a purpose statement. We were buried in order that, look at this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All of our Baptist friends, if you've ever wondered why a pastor says those phrases during baptism, they just take it right out of this verse. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We don't always say that here because honestly, it's a hard saying. So we just say, if you trusted Jesus, yes. All right, hold your nose, let's go, right? Like it's that's easier. Doesn't mean we have to say those phrases, but where do those phrases come from? They come from this. Because what is Paul arguing here? Remember the context. Baptism, this picture is a context of the question, do we continue in sin? No. Why? Because in baptism, we died and we were raised to walk in newness of life. That word there, newness of life, is original, a kind never seen before. So here's his argument. Not only when you came to Christ did you die to yourself, you died to your relationship with sin, but now by the grace of God that comes to you through the Spirit of God, you have the power to behave differently. You have the power, this is this phrase, to walk in newness of life. That word there, walk, is in the active voice. What that means is this, God has now given you the power to behave and obey the law that you didn't have before. That's what newness of life means. So if the power of God is available to you through the Spirit of God, which is symbolized by baptism, then why in the world would you want to continue to sin? Why in the world would you want to walk in deadness of life? You see the argument? Now, I love this, these conjunctions here. I'm going to put them together. In order that, just as Christ, we too. Don't miss that. In order that, that's the purpose, just as Christ, that's the comparative clause, we too. The Me Too movement's going around, and, and, and that's important, but it's not as good as we too. In order that, just as we too. You wanna know what that means? We too. Just as Christ, just as Christ came out of the grave, we too can come out of the grave. Just as Christ was raised to walk in newness of life. And I don't know if you've read the gospels, but when Christ was raised to walk in a newness of life, he walked differently. Homeboy was like walking through walls and stuff. He would show up and then disappear. If he can walk through walls by the power of grace, you and I can walk through sin. You and I can walk through death. Death no longer has a hold on us. Death no longer reigns over us. Therefore, sin and our flesh no longer reign over us. But by the grace of God, through the power given to us, in the fact that was illustrated by his resurrection, we now have that same power to walk in newness of life, which is a different behavior pattern than when we were walking in a deadness of life. So to answer the question, do we sin so that grace might increase? No. Why? Because grace now gives you power over that sin. Because let's be honest. 
Did that sin ever bring you joy? Paul says, why would you go back to the things that you're now ashamed of? Sin's a liar. And this is a hard, man, again, this has taken me decades to understand. It lies. My flesh lies. Will it bring me temporary happiness? For a moment. Will it bring me eternal joy leading to eternal life? No. And now, as symbolized by baptism, you and I have the power of God to walk, behave in a newness, not in a deadness or an oldness. We too. Come on, somebody. We too. We too. Just as Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate baptisms. But again, you can't be baptized until you first understand communion. Communion or the Lord's Supper is where Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of what? That his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us in our place for our sin. And so as we prepare to take that, there may be some of you here today that you have not trusted Jesus. You can't say we too because you're not in Christ. You can't be raised until you first die. God can only raise dead things. And so today, if you want to be honest about your sin, to be honest about yourself and say, you know what? I can't save myself. I need Christ to save me. Then you can take communion with us as you confess Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, I'm gonna respectfully ask you not to take communion because you're just heaping condemnation on yourself. You're partaking in something that you don't possess. But if you wanna possess it so you can partake in it, then today by grace, through faith in Christ, you can. So let's pray and then we'll partake. Father, we pray right now for your spirit to bring to life dead people. If there's anybody here, God, who hasn't trusted in you and been saved, right now, God, would you save them? Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. But if you want to trust Christ before we take communion, if you want to receive through faith that what these two elements represent, his body and his blood, if you want to ask God to apply those to you, for him to die in your place for your sin, then you'll be saved. So right there where you are, if you want to trust Jesus, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession so that you can possess this grace. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you want to trust Christ for the first time, right there where you are, pray with me. Not out loud. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place 
for my sin. I die to myself. And by your grace, would you raise me to new life? Would you save me? Make me a new person. I believe by grace, through faith in Christ. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed to trust Christ, very simply, would you just lift your hand so we can see that before we celebrate communion, so we can celebrate with you? Thank you. We got men and women walking around, gonna put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put your hand down. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. There is no news like the good news. We honor those who have given their lives in our country so that we might have freedom, physically speaking. And that sacrifice is great. And it's simply a picture of the sacrifice that you made. Because you didn't just die to free us physically, you died to free us spiritually from the presence and power and penalty of sin. So God, as we celebrate communion today, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are in awe by the fact that you would love us this much. And God, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. In his name we pray, amen.